Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. Last week, we talked to Dr. Salim Razai from Rebel EM, and today we're going to publish the second half of that interview. If you want to listen, you can hear a lot of good things about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, V-fib, VTAC, whether or not IV or IO is the most effective tool to infuse medication in cardiac arrest. And for this week, we're going to talk about uh, TXA, we're going to talk about different medications for thrombolysis, and we're going to hear what Dr. Rezai has to say about personal growth and how to uh, make 2021 a better year than 2020. So without further ado, here's the second half of the interview. So let's move on to TXA. Uh, this is something that I know TXA has been talked about kind of ad nauseum uh, at this point, especially during 2020, but this one seems kind of important. It is something that we deal with pre-hospitally. Um, Talk to me about this. This is called the HALT-IT trial. This is another uh, fun abbreviation, fun acronym they came up with. Um, that essentially, it deals with acute gastrointestinal bleeding. And I, I think this is important because I think this is a, a acute GI bleeds or something that we see a lot pre-hospitally. Um, I think it was important that it was studied because, again, one of the things is like, well, what can I do for that? So what did, what did the HALT-IT trial find? So before I get into this, Ed, uh, a couple of things. So there might be some listeners that say, but there was so many other TXA studies that you could have talked about, <laughs> like intracranial hemorrhage or pre-hospital TXA. And what I'm going to say is, is that I think that evidence is borne out and just keep doing what you're doing and follow your protocols for that. The reason I picked this TXA paper, I mean, we could have just done an entire podcast on TXA. There were so many studies on TXA this year, but the reason I picked this one is because I think this is a practice changer. I think this changes what we do for GI bleeds. And it's interesting that it's called the HALT-IT trial because the way the authors meant for it to, to be is HALT the GI bleeding. But what it turns out is that the HALT-IT is maybe HALT your practice of using TXA and GI bleeds. And so that's exactly what they did in this study. It was published in Lancet 2020, effects of high-dose 24-hour infusion of TXA on death and thromboembolic events in patients with acute gastrointestinal bleeding and uh, international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So all the words that we like to hear 164 hospitals in 15 countries, and then the patients got randomized to one of two things. They got placebo, which was a 0.9% sodium chloride or normal saline, I guess is kind of the more lay way of saying that, although there's nothing normal about normal saline, was the placebo arm. The TXA arm, so they loaded these patients with a gram of TXA. They mixed it with 100 cc's of normal saline. They gave that over 10 minutes, much like we do with trauma patients. But then what was different is what they followed them with in terms of their maintenance dose, which was three grams of TXA added to a liter of isotonic IV solution. And that was infused over the rest of the 24 hours or 125 uh, milligrams per hour. And I'll come back to why they use that dosing strategy because that's not what we use in trauma. And that's a significantly higher dose. And by the way, the placebo matched everything in terms of the way it was given and the duration of time that it was given in. So there was no like unblinding when you look at that. Right. So this is looking at, this is, you know, every study has their primary endpoints. Um, this is death due to bleeding, five days of randomization. Um, this is another study that is, you know, the, the recruitment is very, very good on this. Your, the sample in this study is over 12,000 patients. Um, really important to have those kind of high numbers because you want to be able to actually be able to tell a difference within a population. And with this type of study, with this type of you know, practice approach, you want to be able to have a very good cross section where you can say, you know what, we did this one study, this is the end that we had for the study. And it, it's, 
it's likely replicatable over time just because of the amount of people that they had. So 12,000 people trying to stop bleeding within five days of randomization, what did they find? Yeah, no difference. 4% for the TXA group, 4% for the saline group. And by the way, I'll tell you that I read hundreds, if not thousands of papers over the eight or nine years I've been doing Revel EM. And if people want to know what a good study looks like, I highly recommend you go read this paper from beginning to end, because this is probably one of the best studies I have read in terms of methodology, the way they thought through things, their explanation of things, looking at all their limitations. I just think this was super well done. And so it's for this trial to find no difference. I tend to believe the results because the methodology was so sound. And then I'll tell you like something else is they also looked at subgroups of patients trying to find if maybe like this worked better in sicker patients, or maybe if we gave it a little bit earlier or, you know, uh, people who were on anticoagulants, they, they looked at all these different things. And again, across the board, no difference in any subgroup that they looked at. And additionally, there was no difference in death due to bleeding or rebleeding at any of the different time points that they looked at. So everything was negative in this study. So completely, completely negative trial, no benefit to TXA and GI bleeds. And that's, that's a big thing is, you know, again, very rarely is it that you have this, a, a well-constructed study with a very good N who they come down and just be like, none of it works. Yeah. I mean, you usually you'll have, some, you'll have some secondary outcome and then people are like, oh, that's super interesting. Maybe for that reason, we should be doing it. But across the board, this was like negative, negative. Right. And this, this only applies again, we talked about the hyperspecificity of trials. This is acute GI bleed as it, as it, you know, presents to pre-hospital medicine out of, you know, that this is something that can actually affect us. TXA is usually used in traumatic bleeds and all that's fine, but it does have some applicability to, you know, your, just your acute bleed. Someone who calls, they've got an acute abdomen, they found blood in the toilet, whatever applies to them, or they vomited, they have hematemesis. Um, and it was a question that I think we all kind of had of, you know, when do we give TXA? How much can we give? Is it just for trauma? Um, and there's a lot of different uses for it, but I think, I, I think you're right. I think you see this and you want to kind of any, any good investigator, right. Is going to try and poke holes in the data set. And it, it, that is, it is hard to do for this one. And you know, it's, if, if this, if this is the change where it's like, you know what, we're not going to give TXA and acute GI bleeds anymore. I'm, I, I'm happy basing it off of this data set is what I'm saying. I, you know, yeah. I mean, listen, there's, there, there's one hole I could find in this entire study. And then I have a, 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 a thoughtful comment about that limitation. And that is that, you know, if you believe that giving TXA early, so less than three hours is an actual thing, um, which I think a lot of the trauma literature has shown us, yeah, the earlier you can give it, the better. Well, only 16% of patients in this study got TXA in that less than three hour window. As a matter of fact, most, almost 60% got it in a greater than eight hour window. And so, you know, people would say, well, of course it didn't work. Of course it's a negative study because they didn't get it in fast enough. But they did two interesting things um, that I think are the thoughtful comments. So number one is they specifically looked at the group of patients that got it in less than three hours compared to the group that got it in over three hours. And they found no statistical difference in any of their outcomes, even when they broke it down by time. And then the second thing I would say, and this is not a fault of the authors, whereas when trauma happens and we have an exact time of onset, what is the time of onset for a GI bleed? 
How do you say that GI bleeding started at this time? How do you know they haven't been bleeding for two days and they only happened to notice it today? That's right. not a fault of the authors. That's a disease process issue. And I think that's why you're not seeing that benefit is that just because you see blood in the toilet doesn't mean that the bleeding started right then. It could have started mm -hmm. seven hours ago and just now showing up. And so that's not anybody's fault. It just tells you that that's the disease process. The final well, thing- Well, right. And it's, it, it's entirely possible that if you were in a situation that you could give TXA at the time of the bleed, it's entirely possible that it works perfectly fine and stops the bleed. But you're right, it's that it's the availability of the, the onset that is problematic for, for this data set specifically, but for a lot of things, um, you know, where the, you're, you're, just, you're just not gonna know. And the final thing I wanna say is like their dosing, like they gave like this like stupid high dose, right? They gave like four grams of TXA over a 24 hour period. And again, they did a really nice job explaining this. The half-life of TXA is about two hours. They know with acute GI bleeds, there's a higher risk of re-bleeding in the first 24 hours. So because they knew the half-life was two hours and the highest risk is in the first 24 hours, they said, we want to cover these patients for the first 24 hours. And that's how they came up with their dosing. And there's sound reasoning behind why they did what they did. And so again, it just makes me believe the results of this trial, regardless of timing of onset of bleeding, which is nobody's fault. It's just GI right. bleeding as opposed to trauma. And that's, and uh, like I said, I, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, TXA, just like every other medication has its place. I think that once it became really popular in the pre-hospital arena and more data started coming out of it, it became kind of, you know, it was, it was the new ketamine. It was like the new, the new it, you know, type of drug. So I think you start to, you try to find places where you can apply it kind of across the board, I think GI bleeds come in and, you know, you want to see if it works, you know, there's, and there's, and there's plenty of other ways that you can use TXA. You know, you can use it for a nosebleed if you're really feeling froggy and you have to get rid of your TXA. Like there's other ways that you can do it. I mean, and let's be honest, like a single vessel bleeding versus a trauma patient that has soft tissue injury, who's getting acidotic and has coagulation issues are two totally different. Disease They're just processes. not the same. They are yep. just not the same. And so I think that's another reason you get this negative outcome on this trial is just the disease process is different than a trauma patient. So anyways, I could talk all day about this paper, but I think people get the message. Don't use TSA yeah. and GI bleeds. It doesn't, it doesn't do it. So the next one we have is the ECAS-3 reanalysis. This is, as long as we're talking about bleeding and thrombolysis and clots and such. Um, so here we're looking at thrombolysis with alteplase. This is three to four and a half hours after an acute ischemic stroke. Um, and this is, uh, this is a reanalysis, that's right. So this is, it's looking over old data. Yeah, so you know, when we look at thrombolysis and stroke, there's really only two positive trials out of all the different trials that are out there. There's probably like 12 of them now. NINS was the first one, and that's what allowed us to use Alteplase in the three-hour or less window for acute ischemic stroke. And then ECAS-3 was the second trial, which allowed us to expand that window to that three to four and a half hour window. So those are the only two. The remaining 10, which did not all look at Alteplase, uh, were completely negative and actually showed more harm than benefit. So this has been like a really huge debatable topic of whether we should be doing this. I think it's actually one of the biggest debates in emergency medicine, critical care, pre-hospital setting is whether we should be giving TPA for acute ischemic strokes. 
But yet, regardless, I think most of us work in systems, at least if you're in the United States, that give thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke that fall in those windows. So this was just looking at that original data. And what they did is they said, okay, well, we see that this was a positive trial. It's really weird this is a positive trial and every other one looking at this time window is negative. So what is, what is the difference here? And so the original trial had 821 patients and they went back and they basically tried to find if there was any imbalances between the groups that might favor one group over another. And we've talked about methodology already on this podcast. And here's what's interesting is they did all these like logistic regression models and all this like kind of statistical hocus pocus. And what they found is, is that there were two things that seemed to impact uh, differences in outcomes when it comes to stroke trials. And that is imbalances in the NIHSS score and a history of a prior stroke. So if there's one group that has a higher NIHSS score or has a history of more prior stroke, well, the outcome's gonna be not as good. That's basically what they ended up finding. And it turns out in the ECAS-3 trial that people in the placebo arm had a higher NIHSS score and had more previous strokes than people in the TPA groups. So they ended up finding no statistical difference after they balanced these confounders that TPA caused any more benefit than placebo in any of these outcomes. And actually, the thing that did remain after they balanced all this out is that increase in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. So we still see the bleeding, but we don't see the benefit once we balance these two confounders out. Now, the one thing I'll say about this before um, I let you kind of talk, Ed, and ask the questions is... A reanalysis of a study doesn't overturn the results of a study. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say. But it does sure make you scratch your head about was it because of something else that made the results positive? And so what you really need is you need this trial done again without those imbalances to answer the question. And so I think that's all this study does is it really makes us think about are we actually doing benefit or are we doing harm for our patients? Well, and that's, I think that's the important thing about this is, you know, once, and it, you know, TPA, once, once thrombolysis actually became, um, you know, a, a popular treatment modality, I think we tended to gravitate toward that generally. Um, just, you know, knowing about the risk of different reperfusion injuries and bleeds and things like that. Um, certainly there's different tools now that we have in 2021 for whether it's clot retrieval, um, there's multiple different devices that do that for ischemic strokes. Um, I, I think the the interesting part of this study is that it it kind of leads us toward this is what we have, but maybe there's better options. Um, and I think this kind of encourages exploring those a little bit. Um, is this something that you would think would changes how you would give TPA, or is it more of a uh, kind of a good note? I think this is just a good note because, I, first of all, there's all kinds of core measures and stroke is one of those core measures and those are all kind of tied back to funding and getting paid. And unfortunately, that's just the system we work in. What I think is more important is maybe on a macro system level, we can't change things too much. But on a micro system, I, I've been a lot more um, not pushing my patients to not take TPA, but at least have a shared decision-making strategy with them about, you know, here's the chance of benefit, here's the chance of harm. 
I don't know what's more important to you is duration of life or quality of life. And, and I kind of let them kind of help me with that. Or, or if their stroke is so bad that I can't have a conversation with them talking to the family about right. what that person's wishes were. And I tend to believe this, even though I said this doesn't overturn the results of the original trial. So there's this concept called a fragility index, which is this concept of if you um, take a randomized clinical trials results and you take one patient at a time from a positive outcome to a negative outcome, how many patients would you have to move over before the result becomes not statistically significant? And for the ECAS-3 study, that number was one. <laughs> so only one patient, even with these imbalances, would have to go from a positive outcome to a negative outcome, and it would be no longer statistically significant. I mean, that's what we're talking about with this original uh, study. Right. And you know, in the original ECAS-3 trial, the baseline NIHSS scores were different in the Alta Place group. It was about an average or mean of 10.7 and placebo is 11.6. So the patients were just worse off neurologically when they showed up. And when we look at previous stroke, 14.1% in the Alta Place group, 7.7% in the uh, placebo group. Um, or I'm sorry, I got that backwards. 14.1% yeah, yep. in the placebo group versus 7.7 in the Alta Place group. So again, twice as many people were kind of worse off from previous strokes in the placebo group. And both of these will lend themselves to favoring Alta Place. You have to balance for these two things to kind of come to a final conclusion. So is this the last we've heard of TPA? Should we stop giving TPA? That's the million dollar question. And Unlike maybe some of my colleagues, I don't think we should just stop cold turkey because of one reanalysis. I do think we need more information on this, number one. Number two, I think at a micro system, we need to educate our patients and their families about what it is we're actually giving to them. And then the final thing I'll say is that I think that the tools we have today are different than the tools they used 20 years ago. Um, yeah. We now have perfusion imaging and mismatch imaging, and I think that there is a niche population that probably can still benefit from TPA. I just think with the blunt tools of a head CT without contrast, or these mobile stroke units, or using an NIHSS score, these are really blunt instruments where we're trying to generalize a disease that is on a spectrum in terms of right. scale of severity and outcome. And so I think if we can use tools that are more sharp and kind of help select out a subpopulation where this might benefit, I think that's where we're moving with stroke care. So I'm not saying that we should stop giving TPA. I just want to make people aware that the evidence isn't super strong and we probably need to do our part in having those shared decision-making strategies with our patients. So, and that's, I think that's a conversation that we're having more and more in medicine writ large, but specifically in emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine is, you know, there were these, you know, sacred cows of treatments that were out there and it turns out that they just don't work. You know, we, epinephrine is, is the one that we keep coming back to. Um, so I, I do think it's interesting that it's like, you know, we have this tool that's available to us. It might work in a very specific subset of patients, but that it works in that specific subset of patients does not make it a panacea for as a drug. You know, it can, it, maybe it works and it, it works very well in this say 15% of the population. And we know that it works well in 15% of the population and, and there we go. And then 85% of the population has to get 
other things, you know, like it's, and forgive, forgive the crude comparison, but like thalidomide is a good example for it where you have a drug where like thalidomide does what it's supposed to do. It's just the side effects are on, are super untoward and not good for use. But even today, you know, there is still a very specific use for the drug thalidomide. You know, it's not given often, but it, it is a very, you know, whatever, 2% of the population that fit into that, you know, hyperemesis group, it, it, it works. Um, this isn't supposed to be a ringing endorsement of thalidomide. I'm not suggesting that we just go back and throw it out on pharmacy shelves. Um, so I don't want to get into the comment section and, you know, <laughs> hear about all the different things that I support based on that statement. Um, but it, it is interesting when you have, you know, you, you have these things where like, okay, well, maybe we don't use TPA for 100%. We use it for 30%, but in that 30%, our outcomes are improved because of this, this data-driven thing. Do you think that's... We, we, we know that we're getting closer to personalized medicine, hyper-specialized medicine, you know, do you think that's, that's kind of the, the avenue we're going down or? Yes, is, yes okay. that's exactly, that's exactly it. And so let me just like use myself as an N of one. So if I come in and I just have some paresthesias of my left upper extremity, um, please don't push TPA on me. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't want TPA, although that's a stroke. I, I don't want TPA. I, I can live with the paresthesias for the rest of my life. If I come in and I can't speak, I'm completely aphasic and I can't use one side of my body. I understand the risks that come with, if I get TPA, I might have a bleed and die from that, but I'd much rather be dead than continue the rest of my life aphasic not able to use one side of my body and have somebody have to roll me over and wipe my ass for the rest of my life. And so, right. and I suspect that that line that I've drawn is going to be different for every patient. These are subjective quality of life outcome measures. And that's what makes this so hard to study. And I think the, as the tools are improving, that is exactly it. We're individualizing the care much, much better. And the blunt instruments that we've been using in the past are going to be things of the past, exactly what they are. Go way of the dodo bird. They're just not right. going to be around anymore. And uh, we know the problems with NIHSS and just using non-contrast head CTs and these stroke mobile units, which still make my head explode every time we talk about them. Um, but, uh, so, but I think so we're I, getting better. I don't want to interrupt, but let's, let's, I do want to, to dovetail off of that because it's something we've talked about on the show. Um, Danny has some experience with uh, with mobile stroke units. What is what are what are your thoughts on mobile stroke units? Um, just real quick, and then we'll move on to difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole goal of mobile stroke units is twofold. One is to identify more patients earlier, um, so that we can give them more TPA. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. That is the sole purpose of those units. But as I've stated, the second issue with those mobile stroke units is they're using blunt tools to increase or I'm sorry, decrease the time in which we give this medication based on a hypothesis that's flawed. And that hypothesis is that time is brain. And what we're finding with perfusion imaging and mismatch imaging is that time is not brain. As a matter of fact, there was just a meta-analysis that was published looking at four randomized clinical trials. And what they found is that there are a lot of people with just strokes that you can actually push TPA on 24 hours out that do just fine. And there's other people in the first hour that have this huge infarct core and just pushing TPA to reperfuse a vessel when the tissue's already damaged has no benefit, but has all the harms associated with giving that medication. 
And so the, the hypothesis is wrong. Time is not brain, right? It's, it's more what is the penumbra? What is the ischemic area that we're trying to save with reperfusion? And that's right. my problem with the mobile stroke units is they're just trying to give it earlier because they believe in this paradigm of time is brain. And that's a flawed um, metric for stroke. So you guys, so now when you actually, when, when the debate becomes super public in 2022, you guys heard it here first on the overrun that uh, yeah, maybe the stuff we do doesn't work out so well all the time. Um, it's, it, it's, just, it's always an interesting kind of paradigm to see, you know, that the time is brain thing is something that we, we teach ENTs. Um, and that's the reason I say like when the debate happens in 2022 is, I mean, you know, we, who knows what the hell we're going to find out in 2021, but it's always, the debate always seems to happen three years after the data. Right. And that's, that's entirely anecdotal. I don't have data to back that up, but it always seems to be like, well, you know, what if, uh, what if it turns out that time isn't brain? What if we can tailor treatment a little bit more? I mean, and it's like, right. We knew that in 2019. I mean, it's just you know? so arbitrary. Like what's, it's like, what's the difference between 4.5 hours versus 4.6 hours? Now it's all of a magic, sudden, yeah, this <laughs> magic, magic 10, 10 minutes, minutes, now I can't give TPA. If that's what you believe, right. I'm just saying if that's what you believe. It's like being a, a last day of paramedic school versus the first day of being an actual paramedic. You don't all of a sudden get this download of information where you just become this phenomenal yeah. like paramedic. There's a learning curve that comes with that. And all the schooling and all that stuff is trying to get you up to a a, a bare minimum so you don't kill anybody, right? That's all that yeah. stuff is trying to do. And same thing here is these time cutoffs are so arbitrary. I, I mean, you know- And based off of very little data as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, to me, you know, I think, look, be efficient, be fast, don't cut corners. That's like the bigger right. message here is that I'm not telling you to slow down. I'm just saying not all strokes are going to follow time is brain. Yeah, no, naturally, of course. I couldn't agree with you more. Along the lines of blood clots and how we're treating them, this is another uh, pretty interesting acronym uh, type of thing. This comes out of the International Journal of uh, Cardiology, I guess, heart treatment and vascular treatment. Um, this is the difficult study. This is, we talked about this off the air. Um, I am super interested in this study because I, I'm interested in studies that tell us that what we know is garbage. Um, just because I think that it's, there's a lot of smaller studies where like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. But I think there's, uh, there's other studies that come out where it's like, did you know that we're bad at this as an industry, just systemically? And this is, this is kind of one of those studies. So tell me, tell me about the difficult study. Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is if you sit down and read this paper, it's very appropriately named because the number of statistics <laughs> and numbers you have to go through are so difficult that um, it, it just, it took me five or six or seven reads to really kind of get through this paper. But I think it's an interesting concept to talk about, you know, when we talk about what goes to the cath lab, if we historically look, it was kind of Q wave versus non Q wave. And then it kind of switched to this STEMI non STEMI and now kind of this new paradigm is occlusion myocardial infarction versus non-occlusion myocardial infarction. So we're not just looking at EKGs, we're looking at the entire clinical picture. And so that's exactly what these people tried to do is this is called diagnostic accuracy of the electrocardiogram for acute coronary occlusion resulting in myocardial infarction, the difficult study. The journal name is hilarious. It's like, like longer than the title of the paper, uh, just published in 2020. 
Now, to be fair, this is single center. It's retrospective case control study done in Turkey. I will tell you that there's been a subsequent second study that's been published by a different group of authors that I have not had time to read yet that essentially comes to the same conclusions as this. And so these are adult patients who presented to the ED with a clinical picture of acute coronary syndrome. And according to the admission EKG, um, which they based off the fourth universal definition of MI, which I'm not going to go through and bore everybody on the podcast. People can look it up. You can do a Google search and find that. They got it divided sounds in, so regal. Right? I like, know, I in, know. In accordance with the fourth universal yeah. definition. Yeah, but I mean, listen, they can look it up just like I can look yeah. it up. It's, I'm not going to waste right. air time um, with you know pe something people can look up. But patients got divided into three groups. They got divided into STEMI. They got divided into non-STEMI and then a control group, which was where acute coronary syndrome was excluded. Now, each group had a huge number of patients and they randomly selected a thousand patients in each group. So really we're looking at 3000 patients, a thousand with STEMI, a thousand with non-STEMI and a thousand controls. So it's again, an another very good recruitment study. Um, this the single center retrospective study that's that's problematic for a couple reasons. Um, I I don't think that it is problematic enough to preclude the data um, because again if you where we're taking in a thousand patients in each group that's a recruitment of three thousand. I'm I mean I'm I'm happy with that number. Um, if it was three hundred, I'd, I'd be like okay, it, I'd have a little bit more trepidation about it. Um, I, I think if you're going to if you're going to juggle a single center study, recruiting three thousand patients, it doesn't necessarily offset that. Um, but I, I'm I'm happy with that recruitment number. And it also comes down to the methodology. And and let's be honest, like the current standard care is STEMI versus non-STEMI. So they're comparing something that's non-standard care to something that is standard care, and you have to start somewhere. And so that's exactly what this trial does is you're not going to have, you just can't go from nothing to a randomized clinical trial. In a lot of cases, right. that would be non-ethical um, because we already have something that's established as standard care, like STEMI, non-STEMI. Um, and the other point is, is that you got to start uh, at some level to prove a hypothesis is worth studying, right? And so that's exactly what this is doing. And so I'm not really as down on the fact that it's a retrospective study or that it's single center. I just think that, yeah, this is an interesting concept and clinically at least has biologic plausibility for me. But I think, you know, we got to start somewhere. And like I said, there now is a second trial and I'm sure we'll start seeing more and more trials. And then ultimately that's where, okay, now we have equipoise and we should think about doing a randomized control trial. So you're just not always going to yeah. have an RCT for everything. Sure. Yep. So what they were looking for is in the group of patients that we categorized as non-STEMI, how many of those patients actually had an occlusion myocardial infarction? In other words, how many non-STEMI patients should immediately go to the cath lab as we would do with a STEMI patient? This is the eye-popping number. Almost 30% of patients in the non-STEMI group were reclassified as acute coronary occlusion. That's, that's not an insignificant number. That's one in three. Right. That's one no, in three patients. Yeah. It's, and, and, and this is just so we're clear here. This is one in three patients that are having heart attacks that we're just missing. This isn't the way that this was done. This isn't necessarily like under stratifying patients where it's like, Oh, we, you know, we waited until they actually had an ST elevation X amount of hours later. This is 30% of patients who were having an MI 
that we straight up missed? Actually, not 100% true because we defined okay. them as a non-STEMI. We, we, okay. we, right. we identified the heart attack. What's different is the management of the heart attack because we know that STEMIs immediately need to go to the cath lab because we need to open up a vessel. But non-STEMIs, oftentimes, it's like medical management, then the cath lab maybe subsequent 24 point. to 48 hours. So they actually didn't miss the, the heart attack. These are patients with heart attacks that had delayed cath. That's what okay, we're saying, right? right? Okay. That's the difference. And so 28.2% is the actual number. I rounded up a little bit, but still 30%. Like that's, that's not an insignificant number. And so then they broke it down. They said, okay, of these patients that were non-STEMIs that had occlusion myocardial infarction, what were the findings on the EKG? And here's what they found. 76% had minor ST elevation with reciprocal ST depression. So they didn't meet the definition of STEMI, but they were abnormal. 12.5% had hyperacute T waves or De Winters pattern T waves. 6% had subtle anterior ST elevation. And then 5% had non-consecutive ST elevation. So all these things are things that don't meet the classic definition of STEMI, but we all know better. These are all signs that they're getting, they have an occlusion in a vessel that needs to go to the cath lab, but because it doesn't meet criteria, they don't get activated. And so these are all precursors to a STEMI potentially. That's, we're catching it so early that it hasn't right. quite met STEMI criteria. Well, and that's, I, I think that's, you're right. That's kind of the thing that comes up with this is that there's, this, we've talked a lot today about how, you know, there's arbitrary guidelines, there's arbitrary figures. And that kind of seems like this is where that's leaning toward where there's, you know, well, it has to meet these five things. It's like, okay, well, if you give it a minute, uh, it will. Um, but we still haven't sent this guy to the cath lab. Like there, the, these are the patients, like everyone has that one. There's one patient that comes to mind where this was the exact pattern where, you know, I had a patient who had hyperacute T waves who wanted to go to an, a non-STEMI center. And it's like, you, you're, having, you're having a heart attack, uh, but I can't prove it. And then, you know, time goes on. And it's like, oh, well, did you know that that patient had elevations? Like, well, at the time they didn't, but you know, give, give it 20 minutes and then we'll treat them once their heart dies enough for us to, to fix it. Yeah. And I mean, they took this one step further, right? They looked at in-hospital and long-term mortality. And here's what's interesting is that these non-STEMI patients that they reclassified as acute coronary occlusion, they had outcomes very similar to STEMI patients and not similar to the uh, non-reclassified and STEMI patients, right? And so in-hospital mortality for STEMI was 8.3% in this cohort. When we look at the reclassified and STEMIs, that number was 5%. When we look at the non-reclassified and STEMIs, so the ones that didn't meet occlusion myocardial infarction, it was 1.8%. So the in-hospital mortality in these this one in three patients is closer to STEMI than it is to, a non, to, to an actual non-STEMI. And when you look at the long-term outcome, STEMI, three point, or I'm sorry, 13.7%. For the reclassified non-STEMI, 10.6%. For the non-reclassified non-STEMI, 14, or I'm sorry, 4.4%. So again, the number's much, much closer to STEMI outcomes for long-term outcomes when we look at mortality. And listen, in this case, time is muscle. <laughs> I know I just right. started saying in brain, <laughs> that's not the case, but that's because we have great collateral flow in the brain. 
oftentimes we don't have the great collateral flow in the setting of an acute myocardial infarction. And so, of course, there are going to be patients that need to go. And the last thing we want is it's not all based on mortality, but it's also quality of life. And so congestive heart failure from large infarct sizes, what I call cardiac cripples, that's the last thing we want to have happen to people is that we diagnose them with a non-STEMI and we delay their cath lab and they become a cardiac cripple because we didn't push hard enough to get them to the cath lab when they needed to be there. So I think this study does you know, open my eyes a little bit more to this paradigm shift. Is it perfect? No, but it's better than the current system that we use. I think it's important to note that when you use this new paradigm, there's still about 20% of acute coronary occlusions you're gonna miss in the non-STEMI group. It's not perfect, um, but it's certainly better than you know, uh, one in three that we're not getting to the cath lab. So I, I like to be balanced in the way that I say things. And so I think if you're worried about your patient clinically, they don't quite meet STEMI criteria, but they meet some of these kind of precursors to STEMI, we need to be pushing to get them to the cath lab. Um, and not waiting till they actually meet the definition of STEMI. And these are these patients where we, we've discussed a lot on the show having that, you know, your high index of suspicion, your, you know, your high concerns for these patients. And I, I think a lot of times these are the patients who you walk in and you're like, that's, a, that's an MI from the door. You know, you have that classic build, you know, patients pale, diaphoretic, has, you know, classic chest pain, those kind of signs. And you put them on an EKG and it's unremarkable. And I think a lot of times it's like, huh, well, look at that. All right. And then you just kind of go about your way. And I think it's important to see like, no, this is something that either the EKG can't see or doesn't see or wouldn't see depending on where their infarct actually was. And that's where you have to kind of take that. We've, we've done a couple episodes on clinical gestalt. And that's, that's kind of where you have to apply that where it's like, you know what? I know that I have an EKG that doesn't show me elevations, but I, I'm confident to say that X, Y, and Z lead to a STEMI. So I'm going to activate a cath lab. And then it gets, it, again, it, it, downstream effects where it's like, I'd rather activate a cath lab and be wrong than be right and not do it. And it's, there's other logistical concerns for that. But seeing an actual data set where it's like, no, there's, there's a lot of patients that can be missed if you're only using the EKG to stratify the patients. It, I think it's important because we, pre-hospitally, I think we put a lot of focus on some of the technology we have, whether it's the EKGs or the vents or whatever. And I think a lot of times you'll print out a 12 lead from your monitor, look at it and go, non-STEMI. Like no, no, no ST elevation that I see and we're all set, we're on our way, you know, lock, monitor and transport. And I think the problem with that is those patients will, you know, they'll be put on the wall, they, they might be more inclined to not be put into the acute care setting until it's much later. So when we talk about how pre-hospital providers truly make a difference in patient care, this is kind of what we're talking about. This is kind of the study you want to see where the, the diagnosis and treatment of these patients is due in part to people saying that patient looks sick. And I, I just, I have that gut feeling absent, you know, clinically diagnostic material. Yeah. I mean, you're not just depending on the EKG anymore, right? You're putting the whole picture together. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're moving forward. You know, we're talking about blunt tools versus kind of finer, you know, tooth comb tools. You know, I think a lot of agencies now have the ability to send EKGs to the emergency department, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's not just like STEMI, non-STEMI. It's like, 
hey, this doesn't meet STEMI criteria, but I'm really worried about this patient. They're diaphoretic. They're giving me all the classic symptoms. And I'm really worried about these T waves in the lateral leads as a hypothetical example. And you send the EKG and I look at that and I'm like, oh, those are hyperacute T waves. I agree. We should activate this pre-hospital. Um, that's where like you're going to start seeing this impact kind of coming in of activating things a little bit sooner. Now, you know, there's this, this fine line though of like, we don't want to overactivate, but we also don't want to underactivate. Uh, we don't right. want to miss things. And what I tell all my uh, pre-hospital brethren and sisters is that I would rather you be conservative and overactivate than underactivate because once that infarct has happened, there's nothing we can do to fix that anymore. We can always call things off, right. but we can't go back in time. And so I always tell them, and there are cases where they overactivated and we'll sit down and talk about it. And they're like, oh, okay. And that's a great learning moment for everybody. And there's other times that they make these just like absolutely phenomenal calls that like if they wouldn't have ordinarily done, that patient would have like not gone to the cath lab, things would have taken forever. And so that's what this study shows me is that there is this gray area of non-STEMI that actually looks more like STEMI. And mm -hmm. it's not going to have all the classic EKG findings. And that's what I'm, I'm pushing for people to be looking for. So we have gone over just so many things. And thank you so much for your time and all this information. These are seven studies that come out of 2020 that are theoretically, they can be practice changing. Um, and it's a lot more information than, you know, at least it's nice to hear something that's not COVID related. Um, but, uh, you're uh, you are very active on social media as as we discussed previously. Um, before I let you go, I do want to talk about how you're handling 2020. You've been very public um, about how you're handling your your personal health, your mental health. Um, that's it, it, you you mentioned it's a it's a deliberate act on your part to do that. Um, a lot of us have been able to kind of follow your journey. Um, I, I, you typically tend to go out and run wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. I will forgive you for that. Um, I born and raised a Mets fan, man. I can't help it. It's all good. Hey, we all have our teams. <laughs> we all have our teams. So, but uh, as 2020 has now come to a close and we run away as fast as we can from it, um, tell us, tell everyone a little bit about, you know, what, what the year has, I guess, has meant for you because, you know, whenever there's, you always try and find a silver lining in all these dark clouds, right? And I think 2020 was uh, was terrible for I'm going to say most people. Um, you know, certainly there's there's a lot of different things that can discuss, but for for you personally, as someone who found like I have to start this, I, I realize how hokey it says, like I have to start this journey. Um, but it, you you posted up something a couple of weeks ago where essentially it was like I made a decision and. I've, I've worked on that and carried through it. Talk to me about how, how that happened, how 2020 has treated you. And since we're all living in isolation in this barren hellscape that we call the, the 21st century, how do, how do you advise people to help get through it? What advice do you have for us in 2021? And all that, all that other uh, doctoral wisdom you can impart onto us. I don't know how much of this is wisdom versus uh, trial and error on myself and just kind of figuring things out. Um, <laughs> try, fail, try, fail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of failure, but that's good. That's the only way we can learn. Um, so 
I'm 43 now, about to be 40. Um, when I turned 40, I had four friends uh, have heart attacks and they were all in their early 40s. Two died of cardiac arrest. One is a um, congestive heart failure patient and the other one ended up doing fine. And I knew that if I continued down the path I was going down, that uh, that would be me um, in subsequent years. Uh, living that fast food lifestyle, terrible habits, um, eating unhealthy, not exercising. And then in addition to that, um, and I don't mind sharing this, is that uh, I've battled depression and mental health uh, since I've been in medical school. And some days are better than others and other days are not as good as others. And so in that journey, the goals for me were to figure out ways to be healthy in all aspects of life both from a physical fitness, a mental health uh, fitness, and a um, emotional fitness. And so that's kind of where the journey started. And obviously, you have good months, you have bad months, you have good weeks, you have bad weeks. It's a constant struggle. And that's why I mean lots of failures and uh, learning from those failures. But I've been consistent and I've been at it um, now for six years. And when this pandemic happened, and lockdowns kind of went into effect and we could no longer travel. And I was kind of quarantined to my own house and work and maybe the grocery store once in a blue moon. I had all this extra time and I could have done anything with that time. I could have sat around, I could have done nothing. And I thought, you know, so many aspects of our lives bleed into our just personal lives uh, from work, from families, just different things bleeding into things. and. This is the first time I've actually had a reason to focus on those aspects is in isolation. And so I have really kind of been reinvigorated in reading books and working on myself in terms of my mental health and recognizing when that's creeping up on me and uh, what are the things that I put in place to kind of battle that, uh, my own health, my diet. Uh, I've started cooking for myself, like recipes that are healthy. Um, I've made it a point that I'm going to get at least 30 to 45 minutes of exercise in every day. Uh, of course, there's days off. It's not seven days a week, but, right. but yeah. you get the point of what I'm trying to say is I'm not making excuses anymore. And so that's been over the last nine or 10 months. And so it's, it's been a fun journey. There have been good days and bad days, and it's been like through trials and tribulations and everybody, it's all relative. I'm not here to say my story is more powerful than somebody else's story. But I think in such a down year, in such a hard year with so much death around us, so much stress at the job, that trying to find that positive attitude and try and change the things that you've always wanted to change is so important in such a hard time, in such a dark time. And that's what I've really been focusing on over the last nine months. And I've been sharing that on my social media platforms. I've been sharing that uh, with friends and family. And I had no idea the impact that was having on others in terms of now people are exercising and they're changing their diets as a family. And who knew that social media could do these things like that, but it's just the message is getting amplified and it's so humbling that my own struggles um, are affecting others to continue to make those changes and look for the positive in things. The final thing I'll say is this is something that I recently came to a conclusion on. We were talking about this early uh, before we started recording is I've been working so hard on so many aspects of my life. The one area that I've not cleaned up is my social media uh, 
followers. And okay. the reason I say that is that there are people that I called friends at one point in my life that when I post things about masks and vaccines always seem to have some negative message or some um, like they, their shit don't stink and like their way is the right way without any evidence to support it. And I've really been struggling with that because it's already hard enough, the stress of the job, it's already hard enough um, trying to get good information out to people. It's hard enough looking at death every day and reading things where people are just attacking you as a person, as a doctor, that you're killing people and you should have your license revoked. And it's just embarrassing that you call yourself a physician when all you're trying to do is like be helpful. I've been struggling with that. And I finally came to the conclusion that, well, I've gotten rid of negative things in my diet. I've gotten negative rid of negative habits in my exercise. I've gotten rid of negative things about my mental health. Why am I not doing the same thing on social media? I'm all for discussion and I'm all for questions. I'm all for figuring out the best answers. What I'm not all for is the negativity of an already negative year. And I've decided to start blocking those people and not allowing not them onto my channels because I just, it's hard enough as it is. And I just don't want that anymore. I don't want to be reading my social media and just seeing negative, 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 because that feeds into every other aspect of my life. And so I've slowly, but surely have been starting to block those people um, that are just kind of on the crazy train. Let's call it. <laughs> it's, it's a good way. It's a good way to describe it. I, um, I, the reason, so it, those that follow Dr. Rizai on, uh, on social media have all seen this, but I think it's important that we have physicians that come out and they say, you know, COVID is still a problem. People are still very sick. Um, you know, I, I think that's important, but I think it's also important to mention, you know, there's, you know, millions, I would imagine, healthcare workers who, you know, you, we are, and, and as you said, we mentioned this off air. Uh, we are accustomed to a certain amount of death and disability in our job. That is, that is not a normal adjustment for the human condition. It's just we we have gotten accustomed to it. But there's there's so much that we're equipped to handle. And then after, say you have a shift where you know there were twelve, you had a, just a pronouncement every hour, right? And then you go home to you know watch the news where they remind you of what you saw at work that day and then it, it is very frustrating and, and as i said to you i have colleagues both in the pre-hospital arena and also um medical students that i'm in school with who are still very much on the you know COVID is a hoax kind of kind of train and it can get I, I my i haven't worked in a hospital uh nearly to the extent that you have in, in this crisis. And I, I imagine it's as frustrating as it is for me that it must be that much worse, uh, you know, for, for you and physicians who are out in the field now, as I said, you know, Mike DeFilippo on our network um, is, is working right now in the, the clinical setting in the ER and, you know, thousands of, of patients come through with, with COVID, um, just all the time. So it, I, it is a very emotionally draining thing. And I think it was important to, to make some mention of it, to acknowledge that before we, uh, before we closed out. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is another thing I've really reflected on. No death is easy. No death is easy. I, I think it, it hits all of us. It impacts all of us. Um, 
And I think it's important that you talk about it, that you reflect on it, that you try and learn something valuable from it. And you try and share those messages with others uh, to kind of continue to move that needle toward progress. Um, I think the difference with this is it's not that you're just pronouncing somebody every hour because there are shifts that just happen like that sometimes. It's not, not your fault. The only way it wouldn't have happened is if you just wouldn't have shown up for work. Um, I think what's been difficult is pronouncing somebody every hour for 10 months yeah. is that's the difference. It's the frequency and the duration combined. And that's been the part that's been super hard for me to digest and to be able to wrap my brain around. And part of the reason I've been so vocal on social media about looking for positives uh, because I'm struggling to find positives every day. It's, I may seem all, you know, uh, hunky dory and happy all the time and happy go lucky. But the, the reality is, is I put a lot of thought into the things that I post and um, I'm, I struggle some days to find something positive. And so the way I look at it is if I'm struggling, I'm sure there's somebody else out there that's struggling. And so that's the bigger message is uh, continuing to look for those positive things. We can't change the reality that we're in, but we can change our reactions and our attitudes toward it. Um, and sharing that with others, you just don't know how much that can help um, in, in somebody who's in a dark place. So that's kind of the way I would end that. No, absolutely. And I, I think it's important that it's talked about. I think it's important that it's discussed um, because certainly this is the, you know, this is the, the chronic pathology from healthcare workers that we're going to hear about for the next five or 10 years after this. Um, the last thing that I want to ask you, you've been more than generous with your time is you had mentioned that you, you have been immunized for COVID-19 now, right? I and have. How, I got how, how did that go? Tell me all about your, uh, your chipping process. Yeah. Tell the so people out there I, what to expect. So I got my Pfizer vaccine yesterday uh, morning and uh, I'll be happy to let you know and the listeners know that I'm no longer on Wi-Fi because of the chip they inserted. I am now completely on 5G on all my devices. Um, all my download speeds are great. Yeah, it's totally, totally joking and being sarcastic in case somebody takes that literal. Um, no, so I got my, my vaccination yesterday. It was, uh, it was kind of a surreal thing that like I've been fighting this for like 10 months and now there's a vaccine that's out there that uh, you know, I can take and potentially keep me safe and maybe in the future keep others safe. Um, I'll tell you that it's been 24 hours. I've had no side effects. Uh, the shot didn't even hurt. Um, no headache, no fevers, no body aches, no fatigue. The only thing I'll say the only thing I'll say is that uh, my shoulder is a little bit sore from where they gave me the shot. But what I'll say is that it's no different than getting my annual flu shot. That's really the only thing I can say. Like if I really like kind of sit down and think about it, it's the right. only thing. Um, and listen, I'd rather take this vaccine and uh, have a little bit of soreness in my arm than actually catch the virus and end up like the people that I'm seeing in the hospital. Um, that are dying um, every day. And for people who I'm not going to come out and say, you should go get the vaccine. Although I do think you should get the vaccine for I'll, people. I'll, who are, I'll say it. Go, go, go get um, your vaccine guys. I mean, I think people should be able to make their own decisions and I'm not going to push people to do something, but I think you should also know the facts before you make your decision. 
And so there's a lot of people out there that think mRNA vaccines are this new thing that they developed in nine months. And it's like, oh my God, it's new. They cut corners, they rushed it. It's actually not the case. They've been studying mRNA vaccines for 10 years now, maybe even 20 years in some cases. And so there's a safety profile with this platform of vaccinations. It's been established over 20 years. The reason we're just seeing it now is twofold. Number one is they were never able to induce immunity with the mRNA platform. So therefore, they never produced the vaccine. But the safety profile is there. The right. second thing is that the problem with mRNA vaccines is the vector to get it into people wasn't really well understood. And now they have these lipophilic vectors, these little like fat bubbles basically that they put it in and these ridiculous cold temperatures that keep the mRNA stable. And that's part of the reason um, that these mRNA vaccines are working better. And then the final thing is, is that we've gotten so good at genetics now that we were able to code the entire COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 virus and we knew what the spike protein was. And that's exactly what this mRNA codes for is that spike protein. It's not the actual virus itself and allows right. our body to form antibodies to it. And so for me, like after reading through all the evidence, looking through the safety profile of over 20 years of evidence with mRNA platforms, it was a no brainer for me to get the vaccine and be immunized compared to what I see in the hospital every day. So just, just so we're clear, because you, you did your own research uh, before getting the vaccine, I just, I just want to clarify. So with your own research, there's four years of undergraduate training, four years of, of medical school, and then there's a handful of years of residency training, I'm guessing, and then specialty training. And then you also, you, you researched how mRNA works. So your own research uh, is what most physicians will do, where it's actually decades long research and an understanding of how the virus works uh, compared to, let's say, Googling for two hours. That's exactly right. I actually <laughs> read through the Pfizer study. I read through the Moderna data. I've read through the AstraZeneca uh, information. I've gone back and read through mRNA platforms in other epidemics like SARS and MERS and kind of what studies like went through all those. I mean, actually picked all these papers and read through them looking for anything that might sway me to not do this. And what I can say is that I'm reassured by the safety data. Uh, I'm reassured by the uh, efficacy of this vaccine. I think there's lots of questions that still need to be answered. And I want to be fair about that. Like, for example, once you're immunized, how long does immunity last? Well, we've only got two months worth of data so far. That's not the fault of the pharmaceutical companies. We just need more time to know, like, is this something we have to get every six months or once a year, or is it just a one time? Or do we do a booster in five years? I don't think we know the answers to that. Right. The second question that I think is unclear is just because you're vaccinated, um, it means that you're preventing yourself from getting severe disease, but you could still be a carrier of the virus potentially, which means you could have asymptomatic transmission, which is why they still ask people physically distance, wear masks and wash their hands and avoid large gatherings after immunization. So mm -hmm. let's not think that this is just like all of a sudden a cure. I think we still need to answer that question. And then I think there's a lot of other questions. There are a lot of different patient populations that weren't studied in these trials, like pregnant patients, for example. Um, you know, old, older people, like over the age of 65 or 70, weren't studied in these trials. And so I think we still need more information on that stuff. 
you know, here's another question. If I get the Pfizer primer, can I get the Moderna as a booster? Follow-up, yeah. As a follow-up, if there's a shortage of Pfizer vaccine, I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. You know, right. so I think there's lots of things that we still have to answer. And I want to be completely transparent about that in my own research. But to me, the pros outweigh the cons. No questions asked. And for me, it was uh, not an easy answer, but uh, one that I, I researched rather heavily. And I'm very happy with the decision I've made based on my reading of the research. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's a is a simple decision um, for anyone to make. I think I, I agree that there are there's personal decisions and personal belief structures that you have to, you know, factor into any decision. Um, I. I, I, when you're looking at, you know, clinical data and research data and whatever else, I, it's very easy. I mean, we've spent, you know, two hours doing it now um, to kind of get into the weeds, but I also kind of think there, there's some value in kind of taking, you know, the, the 10,000 foot view where it's like, you know, it's good, bad. And then it's just, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a pros outweigh the cons kind of thing and, and whatever. But um Dr. Salim Razai from the greater San Antonio area and Rebel EM, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for giving us uh, seven of the best papers from 2020 um, and trying to start off 2021 uh, with, with kind of a bang. Um, hopefully this is a, a better year. Um, I, I joked that we all came into, uh, there's, I mean, it's a joke that's going around the internet too, where, you know, we came into 2019, like bring it, come at me. And then, at the end of 2019, it was like, please just don't hurt me 2020. And now it's kind of like you're going into 2021, like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go in real slow, just make sure I have coverage all around. So thank you for clarifying all that stuff for us. Um, I really appreciate it. You can check out Dr. Rezai at uh, rebelem.com. And uh, I'm sure there's a bunch more things you'd like to plug. So tell, tell the people where to find you, Slim. Oh, I'm not going to plug anything else. I just enjoy doing this and, and chatting. Uh, the one message I want to leave everybody, I guess I could plug my own stuff, but that's not actually the message I want to leave everyone. The message I want to leave everyone is that change doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Think about it as getting 1% better. Be 1% better than the person you were the day before. Be 1% better at whatever thing you're working at. Learn one new fact every day at the end of 365 days, you're going to be 365% better at whatever it is that you're doing. And that's actually the message I want to leave people. I don't want to actually plug anything because I don't care about any of that. I just want people to find their own way and continue to find their own journeys, whatever that is in improving themselves. So thank you for having me. And hopefully since it's been about two years since I've been on the show, there has been some growth and improvement from episode uh, that we did two years ago till now. I, yes, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, I, I want everyone to let us know what you think in the uh, comments, show notes and all that other stuff. So thanks again, Salim. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. Our thanks again to Dr. Salim Razai from Rebel EM. You can find all of his stuff at rebelem.com. It is an extraordinary uh, website and blog and podcast and everything. And we're very happy that Dr. Razai was able to join. Uh, I'm very happy that Dr. Razai was able to join me for this interview. A um, lot of really good information, lots of stuff to look forward to coming through in 2021. And as I'm recording this uh, on a personal note, there were... Um, some pretty serious things that happened in Washington, D.C. the other day. So I want to make sure that everyone stays safe. Um, you know, when we talk about how 2021 is going to move on, take care of yourselves, take care of your family, get vaccinated. Um, 
and we, we have to try and make 2021 a better year than 2020. So hopefully we can use the data that we've applied over the past two weeks or the data that we learned over the past two weeks and improve our practice. And if you have any questions or concerns, you can always find us at overrunproductions at gmail.com. And we're also on all the social media. Uh, check out the merch so that you can do better in 2021 for the overrun. I am Ed Bowder. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time.